0: Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm gonna be covering the path to financial independence or what we used to call retirement. I wanna show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I wanna show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful-retirement-review-dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class.
1: If there is a partner was not as financially literate, it would be like extremely beneficial for them to get a financial coach so that they can at least feel somewhat comfortable looking at a spreadsheet. What am I looking at, right? And what do I need to be concerned about? And the other thing is budget.
2: Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan DiYo and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life.
0: Hello there. Welcome back on this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast. I'm chatting with Alice Shakina. Alice is an international speaker, negotiation coach, and divorce mediator. She's the author of the book, Negotiating with Your Kids, which I have to read for current time. Alice is passionate about helping people get out of conflict and moving forward with their lives. She recently released her online webinar, Design Your Own Divorce. And today I wanted to have Alice on the show because hopefully she can give us insights on how to avoid getting to divorce, especially as it reflects on money. So Alice, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. I'm really excited to be here and I'm excited to talk to your you know, audiences about basically what I see and what not to do so that you can stay in a good place.
0: Yeah, what to do, what not to do. We're going to cover both here. So just say i want to do a little shout out here. Alice and I were introduced by a longtime good friend of mine, Scott Jacobs. And so I appreciate that. If anyone else out there has... Somebody they'd like to hear me interview on the podcast, just say so. It'd be great for me to meet some new people and I love doing these interviews. So if you have someone you want me to have on, let me know and make an introduction. Alice, first, where do you call home and where are you connecting from?
1: So I am connecting from Oakland, California. And I do most of my work online. So I am working out of Oakland as well. However, I am not from here originally. I'm from the deep South. I'm from Lafayette, Louisiana, what we call Cajun country and I grew up there, and my parents are actually from Okinawa, Japan. They don't have like a nice mix of cultures going on here.
0: Were you born in Louisiana?
1: I actually was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, and we eventually made our way down to the South, and then I went to college in the Midwest. So I've traveled a little
0: bit. Every culture is represented. I love it. When you were growing up, what did you learn about money and entrepreneurship?
1: So it's really interesting because I go to a lot of networking groups and we talk a lot about money mindset. We talk a lot about how the way you grew up and the messages that you got from your parents really impact how much money you can make. Because if you have a set mindset where you feel like, you know, I don't deserve this much money or having a lot of money is bad, then it does limit you. And so I'm very well aware of that. So Jonathan, what's really interesting about my background is that I started off when I was five years old and I wanted to become an actress. And so as you can probably imagine, become an actress, unless you make it into the big leagues and you're like Jennifer Aniston type, you're not going to make much money. And particularly if you're in theater, theater is like nothing. So I actually grew up like being okay, following my passion and not really thinking about money. I was just like, okay, whatever. If I don't make money, I don't really care because I'm doing what I love. And so. From myself, I didn't really think about money, but what's more important is that, and it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. My parents kind of shielded us from the conversation of money. So on the negative side, I didn't really learn about, you know, how to balance a checkbook or I didn't really learn about investing in the stock market or purchasing real estate, right? All of that stuff because they didn't really talk about it. But on the flip side, I also never, I was shielded from the, we're struggling financially, we don't have enough money, like you can't do this because we don't have enough money. They shielded me from all of that. So really the only way that I knew that we didn't have a lot of money and that we were poor is because we grew up in a trailer park. And so it was really obvious when I'm comparing, you know, my lifestyle with my friends' lifestyles, that was really obvious. But aside from that, my parents did a fantastic job shielding me from the struggles That they were having financially. And they always put on a game face. And they're always like okay let's do it. Whatever you know. And so they really did a good job shielding me. From the negative. Like it's a struggle. It's difficult. No matter how hard we work we can't make money. So that actually didn't go into my psyche. And I didn't even find out. Until I was like in my mid 40s. That my mom told me. Oh yeah we were totally on food stamps. The whole time you were growing up. And I was shocked. I had no idea at all, none. So it's interesting because I feel like I'm learning a lot of things about money late in life because of the fact that for the first half of my life, I was focused on going into theater and acting and then later on directing. And it wasn't until my mid-40s that I started becoming interested in becoming an entrepreneur. And so at that time, I really had to catch up. I had a lot of catching up to do. I had to study a lot about money, how to make money, how to invest it, how to get investors, that sort of thing. So I'm a little late and I'm trying to play catch up. But interestingly enough, I do not feel like I've got the limited beliefs that many people may have picked up in their childhood.
0: Yeah. Is there an experience that, I mean, you couldn't have been completely opaque to it. Like you had to have, Some kind of a sense. So did you ever have an experience growing up that sort of made you realize, Hey, I have a different situation than other kids?
1: No, I knew that, but they didn't weren't sending messages. It was more like reality. And so I was not happy about reality. So I remember very, very clearly I was, I believe in like kindergarten or first grade and they had a box where, you know, you're like, drop off your old winter coats. Like we're going to donate the winter coats to the less fortunate kids or whatever. And I was the one who my mom was like, let's go get a coat for you from that box. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go get a coat that one of my classmates donated. So that means that when I'm wearing it, they're going to oh. know that I'm wearing their coat.
0: Oh, yeah. that's hard.
1: So that kind of stuff was happening to me. So I was always like, oh, I don't like this. And I lost friends when they would come and visit me and it was a trailer park. And they're like, oh, she's poor. We don't want to be friends with her. And they never said it explicitly, but like they're visiting me, they stopped yeah. hanging out with me. So I kept having these, like, it was real obvious to me, but I guess my point is my like, parents didn't feed me the negative vibes or messages, but I was picking up on it for sure because I'm going to the Salvation Army or buying clothes. And I'm like, I don't want to buy clothes here. So it did affect me in that to this day. I'm like, I'm not going to buy my clothes at the thrift store and i know it's back in vogue and people are buying clothes and super cool like the teenagers these days are like let's go to the thrift store and let's go buy some really cool clothing but because of my upbringing or i shouldn't say upbringing because of my experience as a young child those have informed how i am it's not so much that i'm snobby and i'm like oh i'm too good it's more like it brings like some bad memories and i'm trying to avoid those
0: yeah, so my daughter is a teenager and she went thrifting yesterday with a bunch of friends. But I remember going to the bread store when I was a kid, and there's the fresh bread and there's the day old bread, and then there's the stuff they're going to throw away. And my parents would walk away with the stuff they're going to throw away. And I remember vividly that there's this pile of you know, it's dry, it's crusty, it's old, and that's the stuff that we took home. You put it in not a microwave, but there's a way you could actually soften it up again. I don't remember what that way was, but that was always done. But Later in life, I now go to a thrift store and I buy a pair of like Kohan shoes that are 200 bucks regular for 30 bucks. So I'm all for it. I'm all for it. It makes sense to me now. I'm over that part. That's good. <laughs> you know, before we get into sort of today's topic, give us a sense of your path, like leading up to mediation, arbitration, and your expertise in divorce specifically. How did you get here?
1: Sure. So it's a little bit of a windy path. And some people might say it's interesting. So as I mentioned, I started off as an actress. I went all the way through high school and college. I have a BFA in acting. So I studied it very, very deeply. And I went on to do some master's work in directing. And so when I moved to the Bay Area initially, I was a director. I became the artistic director for a local theater company called Three Wise Monkeys Theater Company. And so what I was doing is I was directing as well as producing Bay Area playwrights shows, brand new shows that never been seen before on the stage. And so that's what I did. And then once I moved here, I was also working as a graphic designer in order to subsidize my passion for theater. I always knew that theater was not going to pay the bill. And I didn't care. I was like, I love it. I will do it for free. I don't care. So I was working full time as a graphic designer, most of that time at home. And I was subsidizing my work in the theater. And so some people might say, well, what happened to your theater? Well, what happened is I had two children. <laughs> and once you have got kids, like the time that you spend with your children was the time that you're spending in rehearsals. Rehearsals are typically 6 to 10 p.m. Monday through Friday. And so once you have little kids like that puts an end to your career. And so that's where that stopped. And then. In 2013, I got a part-time job. I still have this part-time job where part of that job is mediating between host families and au pairs. And for your listeners who are not aware, an au pair is a live-in caregiver who comes from a different country and takes care of your children in exchange for the American experience, right? And so part of that job for me was mediating between the host families and the au pairs whenever there was some kind of issue. And as you can imagine, not only is there a language difference, there's also a cultural barrier. So if you put those two together and you're having people living in the same place, you can imagine what kinds of conflict might arise. And so I began mediating for that company. And that was the first time I ever started mediating. And I had to tell you, I didn't get any training at the time. And I jumped in and I was terrified. I was like, what am I doing? I have no idea what I'm doing. And they would just tell you to go to their home. So now I am mediating a conflict in the place of conflict, which for those of you who don't know, it's a little, it's like not the best idea to be mediating like in a place where it's not neutral. The conflict is taking place there. So I was going in there and I recognized after doing it for a while, like, oh, I'm actually like pretty good at this. I'm able to get people to resolution. And so in 2016, I was laid off from a full-time tech startup job. And at the time I was thinking like, oh, what do I want to do? Because I didn't want to continue doing what I was doing then. And so my boyfriend said, well, why don't you just become a mediator? And I said, well, but don't you have to be a lawyer? And he said, no, you don't. I researched it, found out you have to get a certification, went and got not just the mediation certification, but I got the arbitration certification. So I'm an arbitrator as well. And for those People who don't know the difference or they're like, what is arbitration versus mediation? Arbitration is basically a private trial. So you don't go into the public court system. You hire a private judge who is the arbitrator and you do everything privately. So you pay them money and you get it done. It's done like much, much more quickly than if you go to the court system, the public court system. And so I am an arbitrator. I'm able to arbitrate cases and I'm also a mediator. And so that's sort of how I got here. People began finding me online because more than finding mediators through word of mouth, most people are looking silently online. So you can imagine if you're going through divorce, you don't want to like advertise to everyone, all your friends, especially if they don't know yet. Usually you want to tell your friends last. So you don't really go around saying, hey, by the way, Jonathan, I'm looking for a divorce mediator. Do you know anybody? Good. It doesn't usually happen. So they find me online. And so that's sort of how I began doing that. So I do a lot of different types of mediation. But divorce is definitely one of the ones that I do the most of.
0: And, and, that's that's, how I got and, that's, and that's what we're going to talk about today a little bit. So just get us up to speed. I mean, I haven't looked at these numbers for a long time, 50%, 60%. Can you give us the percentage of first and second marriages that end in divorce or update I mean, those numbers?
1: Yeah. I mean, I believe it's around 50%. And, you know, here's the thing. I don't know if a lot of people are aware, but what they call silver divorces are like becoming increasingly popular. And a silver divorce are people who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s getting divorces. And I mediate people who are coming in saying, we've been married for 30 years. We have grown children. We have grandchildren. And they're getting a divorce. So it's becoming more frequent that older people are, I think partially because we're living longer, right? Like before people might've been dying at 70, 75. Now it's like 85, 90. So you're adding on like, A decent chunk of your life.
0: 15 more years with the same person. Exactly. (laughs) So then you think like,
1: right. You're like, you know what? I think I'm ready to move on. Right. (laughs) So a lot of times people will come to me and get a mediator to mediate the divorce at age 60.
0: Do you have a sense culturally what might be causing the number of divorces? I mean, maybe it's the length of time, but is there, are there like initiating factors, money being one of them? And what are the two biggest causes and how many divorces can be attributed to those two biggest causes?
1: I would say money and communication. And so, you know, I'm happy to chat about both of those things, but definitely communication causes a lot of marriages to deteriorate over time. So there's a certain amount of time you can stay together having dysfunctional communication, but ultimately it degrades the relationship because there's so many bad communication habits that people, you know, constantly use. And also money. I mean, I've had people come and tell me, hey, Alice, I'm getting a divorce because my wife refuses to get a job, right? Mm. Like they say, hey, I want you to pull your weight. Please pull your weight. And one side says, no, I don't want to work. I married you so I can stop working. And then the other person is like, yeah. They're like, ah, uh, that's not what I had in mind. And so, and it happens on both sides. Sometimes there are men who are not working and they're living yeah. off of their like income and the wives are like, mm, I'm not really happy about that. Although it is interesting to note, this is very, very interesting. If I'm mediating alimony from a husband to a wife, usually they're like, I want to be fair. Like, let's talk about this. Usually when I mediate alimony from a wife to a husband, everyone is bitter. They're like, why do I need to pay you alimony? You're a dude. You're quite capable of going out and getting a job. I should not have to pay any of my money to you for alimony. It is almost 100%.
0: Well, I mean, that are those the individuals that you're meeting between or do you think that's more of a cultural thing? Like if it's a woman deserves the alimony, a man should get a job. That's. I
1: feel like there's that sort of cultural indoctrination that's happened 50 years. And even though we're now like, oh, you know, women, equality, what have you, I feel like there's like some little teeny tiny remnants in the backs of everyone's minds. It's sort of like it's kind of like the dust balls underneath the sofa that no one Like looks at or thinks about. And it's sort of like pervasive, but no one talks about it. I don't Mm -hmm. even know that people necessarily talk about it to their friends. I don't hear about it. I don't really read a ton of articles about it. But I've noticed if a woman is the higher earner and she has to pay alimony, she's typically very bitter. She does not have the type of attitude like, let me make sure it's fair. I want to make sure you're taken care of. I want to make sure that you have enough money. No, typically they're like, you're just as capable as I am. Why do I have to pay you all the money? You can go get a job, right. and that is like a very stance. So I do feel like there's like that sexism that's still lingering, but it's a teeny tiny bit of it that's like sort of like in the backs of everyone's minds, and it might be unconscious. It right. may not be conscious. They may not even realize it. It is literally just a feeling that they have.
0: How does like different levels of money smarts play into the conversation? Yeah. Some people have. Like I'm in the financial industry and my wife is not. I manage, you know, most of the money we report. We have, you know, family meetings, but she's really not engaged in it that much. You know, when you have a divorce or how do you avoid in that situation, how do you avoid couples ending up in a divorce if there's that drastic difference?
1: So there's a couple of things, right? So on the one hand, it's always good if everyone had at least the same amount or a similar amount of some basic financial literacy. Because what happens there'll be a couple and one side is significantly more financially literate than the other. And then they continue on for, let's say, decades that way. Then what happens at the time of divorce is that there's an incredible amount of fear that comes up for the spouse who is less financially literate. Right. And they feel like, look, you have 15, 20, 25, 30 years more like experience, than I do with finances, I feel like you're going to, you know, make it unfair. You're going to A make high it fair. Yep.
2: Yes. You're yep. going To
1: fair. And so it makes the friction in the conversation is palpable
2: hmm. if
1: the financial literacy is not somewhat equal. And so I really do feel like everyone needs to have that financial literacy. However, here's my second point. Sometimes that fear is so strong, it prevents that second spouse from learning everything they need to. It's kind of like thinking, oh, I suck at math. So like, don't even show me anything because I'm really bad at it. I'm not going to understand it. And that fear is like repelling any sort of knowledge. And so I do notice because people say, well, I don't understand, Alice. I've been giving all the account, like passwords to my wife. I said, here are the spreadsheets. I like did a whole bunch of spreadsheets. I've shared it with her and she's not looking at anything and then Hmm. come in for the divorce. She's like, well, I think you're going to take a lot more from me because, you know, you understand everything I don't understand. And the conversation is very unequal because one side is saying, I've tried to make it transparent to you all these years. You haven't taken any interest. And now that we're divorcing, you're screaming and saying like, oh, it's going to be unfair. Oh, I don't understand what we have. Oh, you're probably hiding assets, right? And so I think it does help if couples, if there is a partner who is not as financially literate, it would be like extremely beneficial for them to get a financial coach so that they can at least feel somewhat comfortable looking at a spreadsheet. What am I looking at, right? And what do I need to be concerned about? And the other thing is budget. So many people do not create a family budget either because one person is blocking it from happening. They might say, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. And then they kick the can down the road. Mm -hmm. So for years, somebody will say, oh yeah, we've been trying to come up with a budget for years and it's never happened. Or neither side is really good at creating a budget. And so they've sort of gotten away with it. And now at the time of divorce, they have to start creating a budget and they're just like, oh my gosh, we don't know what we're doing. And now we have to do it. And this is actually the reason why we're getting a divorce. So a lot of these things come up like during a divorce, all of the issues around money, like come like right to the surface.
0: I'm curious, you know, do you see more divorces from people that keep their accounts separate or more from people that, you know, put things together or is there any advice? Because that's one of the first questions I get from new couples is to, hey, do we blend our finances or do we keep them separate?
1: Based on what I have seen, my suggestion, and maybe Jonathan, have a different suggestion, but I always feel like they should have a joint and each should have their own separate. Because what happens is when they combine everything and they have nothing separate, then they stay together for, say, 20, 30 years. It suddenly feels extremely scary, emotionally mm. scary to go and open your own account when you've always been comfortable for like the past several decades having a joint account. And so people get like anxiety just trying to open up an account so that they can start to like split their finances apart. So I feel like at least having a little bit of independence is helpful because if we're talking about 50% of people are getting a divorce, you might as well just keep a separate account, not in case you get a divorce, but have it so that you have that amount of independence in your life, in your emotional psyche, right? So that the divorce itself is not going to be as traumatizing. You're not like getting kicked out from the nest And you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to fly. Oh my goodness, I haven't been practicing, right? So at least you can practice flying all the time by yourself with a solo account and you can have your joint account. Maybe your solo account is just for your, I don't know, discretionary spending or whatever. And it doesn't have to be a lot, but at least you have that because I have noticed that when people come from marriages where they only have a joint account and they've only had a joint account for several decades, There's a lot of fear about splitting it up and opening up a brand new account. And of course they do it, but I can tell it feels very uncomfortable for people.
0: Do you think that the partner who is sort of more dominant with the financial knowledge and the financial management in the case where there might be joint accounts might use that as a lever to like, you can't possibly do this on your own. You need me for this. Is that something that becomes like not a wedge issue, but a sort of golden handcuffs issue?
1: You mean like during the marriage?
0: Yeah, like we're married. You can't possibly do this without me. So, yes, so I do you know, think that, you know, I'm going to let you have access and I'm going to control you. With it.
1: Yes, absolutely. That does happen. Yep. And, you know, I think it's fair depending on the marriage and depending on the amount of trust. I think it's fine to say, OK, we'll have transparency into each other's account, you know, so that if let's say if I say, well, I don't know, I feel like you might take a lot of the money that you earn and spend it all on your own or what have you. You can still have transparency into each other's accounts if you would like that. But at least to have it so that you are constantly flexing that like independent muscle so that also if you do get a divorce, it doesn't feel quite as scary. You just sort of like funnel things separately and then go on from there. But, you know, and then there's some people who are like, oh, I got married just out of college. I have never had my own account ever. Can you imagine if you are 55 years old and you're being asked to create your own individual account for the first time in your adult life, how scary that might feel. So I feel like it's not the best idea just to say, oh, we're getting married. We're going to like make joint accounts and that's it. We're going to have nothing by ourselves because later on, there is an emotional price to pay.
0: Yeah. Money is definitely emotional. No question about it. And I want to get to spending in just a second, but there is this, in our case, I'm just going to use myself as an example. I'm sure other people are like this. Since I'm engaged in the finances and I pay the bills and all that kind of stuff all the time, I don't have a separate account, but my wife does. Like she has her own account. And so we kind of resolved it with a middle path. Like since I pay the bills, I don't really need a separate account. I just use the joint account. She has access to that. I actually don't have access to her account and I don't even know what goes on in there, but it's, you know, it's her money. It's her account. So have you seen people find creative ways to get around the issue of joint versus, you know, separate?
1: Yes. I mean, I think that's totally a font. Like your example is perfectly fine if it works for both of you. Like, great. And yes, absolutely. There are people like I recently had someone, a couple who decided, you know, we're a little bit on shaky ground. Let's draft a post And let's just say that like everything going forward is separate property, even though they're married. Oh. Right. And so they wanted to just agree. And so then they felt better because they could control, you know, their own money, that it wasn't just a pile of money. That in California, they'll say a 50-50 split. So they just felt like, okay, we each feel emotionally more comfortable if we at least say like this pile of money is actually just separate property. Let's just agree to that. So they did something like that. So you absolutely can in a prenup or a postnup get creative with the way that you'd like to do things. I always tell people, if you're going to get married, please get a prenup. And, you know, and I feel like a lot of times people might say, oh, well, I don't have a lot of money, so like, why do I need a prenup? And for me, it's not about how many assets you have. It's about the fact that if you ever buy anything, you're automatically under the law, considered business partners. So the prenup or the post is basically a business contract between two business partners. You're not just romantic partners, you're also business partners. So I'm a very strong believer in that because it will make your life a lot easier in the event that things get dissolved. And even if they don't get dissolved, at least you've got a nice contract with each other.
0: I mean, it's an interesting idea. The fact that, you know, everyone that's married is also in business together, like your debts are each other's debts. I mean, it becomes a partnership, literally a partnership from a legal perspective. However, many, many, many people get married and not many people have business experience. So how does you know, somebody th- listening to the podcast, they're thinking about getting married, they're talking to their you know, future spouse, maybe they're already engaged. How do they prepare each other or how can one person prepare themselves for the idea that they are going into business with this other person and having a legal arrangement where they're going to be responsible for the other person's spending, debt, all the kind of stuff that they accrue post-marriage?
1: Well, I think what's really interesting is that people, you're, entirely correct they don't have a prenup or a postnup and they go through the marriage but what happens is if they go if they end up getting a divorce that will be the first time that they start thinking about how should we be dividing things up so it's a very belated conversation and when i say belated it means that there isn't a paper trail so Mm. if someone says well i used my mom's inheritance to pay for the down payment of the house and then you paid for the mortgage over 20 years and then you paid for remodels, fixes, any repairs, et cetera. And then I, as the mediator will come and say, great. That's fantastic. You each want your money back out. Where's the paper trail? And what do you think happened? There is no paper trail, right? And then they're very upset. So what's going on is that people are going into a business relationship unknowingly. Right. They don't really realize it. And so they're in they're, love. They're in love. But, but I mean, you can be in love and still go in together, but to right. be able to at least when you're in love, think about how do we want to structure our business together? Right. Am I going to be the one putting most of the money in? Because sometimes that's the case. Are we going to just put in the money together 50 50? Are we just going to like say, you know, sometimes people say, I'll pay the mortgage and you pay for the food. And then later on, Do you think that the food costs are calculated when they're trying to split the house? No, never, never, never. That is never calculated. So somebody comes in and says, well, I put in this much money because I paid the mortgage all these years. And the other person says, yeah, but like the agreement is I was going to be paying for the groceries. And they're like, oh, I don't care about that. Like, I just want my money. So you see what I'm saying? So you want to be able to structure that in a contract to say, I'm going to pay X number of dollars for mortgage per month you're going to be paying X number of dollars for groceries. These things are considered equivalent. And over the course of year over year, this is the amount that we will be putting in together. So that at the end of this business arrangement, this is how we get out of it, right? So you really have to consider a lot of things that people never consider while they're doing it. And afterwards, it is a nightmare to try to unravel and try to get something fair for everyone. So. I really think that regardless of, let's say you go into a marriage and neither one of you has any assets. You're like, we're just out of college. We're getting married. We don't have anything. It does not matter. It's okay. Just go in, talk about what you're going to do if you buy a house, if you buy two or three houses, if you buy a car, if you have 401ks, if you invest in the stock market. Talk about how you want to divide that up if you don't want just the California law to say 50-50 split, that's the end. Right. Because any kind of agreement that you come up with and sign trumps what the law says. So if you don't want what the law says, which is 50 50 split from the time of the marriage till the time of the divorce, and you want something else? You need to sit down and draft a prenup or a postnup, particularly with a mediator, hopefully with a mediator, because the mediator can help you have conversations. And like you said, anytime money comes up, it is highly emotionally charged, mm-hmm. highly. Like I can go through every part of a divorce mediation, like talking about the different things. And when we get to the money, it's really, really emotional. And I pull people into different rooms because they cannot stay in the same room and think
0: straight. Right. You are the only person that I've ever heard focused so much on get a prenup, have an agreement, treat it as a business and You know, everyone I've ever spoken to has gone to a literal business partnership. You know, we're going to open a store, we're going to do something online, whatever. They've always been taught or they've always talked about the idea of having an exit strategy. What happens when the partnership fails? Why? That seems to be completely missing in the, you know, the loving, you know, potential relationship, lifelong thing. But it seems like it's kind of important. It affects, I mean, I'm going through, I've got two or three clients right now going through divorces and they're incredibly contentious and none of it's written down. And all the things you're talking about, one person is more knowledgeable than the other. And so that creates all this kind of, I don't trust you. You're going to try to take advantage of me kind of stuff. And if it's all written down, you don't have to think about it. So that's one huge thing is get it written down and talk about it. What are some of the other things that people can do to actually protect themselves during a marriage or before they get married so that if it unravels, they're okay?
1: Well, I want to just touch upon the fact that like none of these people are getting, you know, exit strategies. And I think it's because in our society, everyone has bought into hook, line and sinker, the whole like dream and fantasy of like happily ever after, right? Mm -hmm. Like you read prince and princesses, like stories of them when you're growing up in Disney books and Disney movies. It's like happily ever after, happily ever after. And so it doesn't matter how many people get a divorce. It doesn't matter when people actually go through it, they go get married again because they're like, I'm still chasing the happily ever after dream. And I think that is like a deep part of our psyche, which is why these prenups and post don't exist as much as they should, because people really believe like this is it. This is like for my lifetime. And I really, really encourage people to think more deeply. And instead of saying, let's get a prenup drafted because we might divorce, to say, let's get a prenup together so that we can function as a healthy business partnership, as well as a relationship, right? Like a personal romantic relationship. So people really need to think about their spouse as a romantic partner and a business partner. The minute you buy anything or the minute you accrue wealth, you're suddenly business partners. So I want everyone to like shift their mindset, first of all, into thinking that, hey, I'm getting married or I am married we are now in a business partnership and I don't feel like I want people to think like, so here's Jonathan why I think a lot of people don't get it done because they're like, oh, that means that we're planning for a divorce. No, you're not planning for a divorce. You're just trying to plan for a healthy business partnership, right? So that's number one. So your question was, what can people do to prevent themselves from like crashing and landing at my doorstep basically, right? Yes, yes. So- I think that it's really important to learn good communication skills before your relationship is eroded, before people are tired, before people feel like, oh, my self-worth is like out the window because I've been, you know, treated badly for the past three or four years. I think communication is a huge, huge reason why people get divorced. I see it all the time. And they come to me and they're like, yeah, like, you know, we're getting a divorce because our communication has been terrible. Right. They don't
0: say that. They don't say it because their communication is terrible. They actually self-identify that way. Seriously. Some of them do. Interesting.
1: They will say we can't communicate. And by the time they get to me, even if I could help them, they have eroded the love for each other so much so that it's not fixed. It's unrepairable. Right. And so what happens is that either people aren't listening to one another. They haven't learned how to acknowledge what the other person is saying. Like, I would say like, most of the world, they just want acknowledgement. We're all humans walking around the planet wishing to be acknowledged and it doesn't happen as much as it should. And so if you can acknowledge what your spouse is saying to you, even if it's contentious, you will go a long, long way into saving your
0: marriage. I have to say that right now, this resonates very much for me. Like I'm just noticing some things that I have done that were sort of anti-acknowledging something that I should be acknowledging. So thank you for that little, say that again. I think that's probably the most important thing you've said.
1: (laughs) It is. It's very important. So it's super important to acknowledge what the other person said. So in my communication class, this is what I teach. I say, person A says something, and normally person B responds. But everyone is missing the second step. The second step is to acknowledge what you heard. Don't even respond until you've acknowledged what you've heard and you've verified that that is correct, right? It's like
0: you say, what I hear you saying is, do I have that right?
1: Yes, correct. Exactly, right? So even if you said to me, let's say you said something very inflammatory. You said, Alice, you're completely manipulating everything and you're lying to me. Now, I might get defensive and I say, how dare you say that? Like, I'm absolutely not, right? So that would be my normal reaction. But the correct response is, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. You are saying that I am manipulating the situation and I'm lying to you. Is that correct? That is step two. Because once I do that, you're going to say yes. And then all of a sudden, like the heat is going to go down. And then I can respond. Mm. And you're going to be able to hear it because you're in a place where you can hear it. If I respond, you can't hear it because I never acknowledged you. The door is closed. So now we're communicating at closed doors. Your door's closed, my door's closed, and we're just spouting at each other. Even if we take turns, it's not going into our brain. <laughs> and I've seen it happen, like time and time again, in very contentious mediations. I will force, to, I will say, Jonathan, can you please repeat back what the other person said? And I can't tell you how many times the other person has said, I don't know. I don't remember what they just said, like literally after it was spoken, like a second later. And then the person who was speaking is shocked. They're like, what? You did not hear anything because they're nodding their head. They're not talking. They're making eye contact. And then when you say what was just said, they're like, I can't say, I don't know.
0: Wow. Wow. That's huge. And they're just preparing. This is yes. You said one word. That was a trigger yes. word. I'm going to respond. right?
1: Yes they're responding or they're in their heads about like, what a jerk. I can't believe they're saying this. It's ridiculous. This is the same thing that, you know, like they're spinning like stories and thoughts in their mind. And so it's blocking any kind of like hearing and understanding.
0: So we talked about like different levels of intelligence around money or not intelligence is the wrong word, you know, experience with money. We've talked about his and hers and or his and his or separate versus together. We've talked about prenup. What about spending? You know, So many couples have different ideas about spending. You know, I save every penny, someone else spends every penny. How do people manage that?
1: Well, so one of the things when we talk about a prenup or a post-up, it's not just about like, okay, how are we splitting the asset? It's that conversation. It's the conversation about money. It's saying, hey, Jonathan, like, what are your thoughts about putting a budget together? And you might say, I don't know, I've never done one before. And I might say, Well, I would like to, as a family, like create a budget. Would you be open to like creating a budget with me? And if the answer is yes, you better put in a deadline because without a deadline, it just goes on and on. Right. And then to talk about stuff like spending, Jonathan, like what are your thoughts on spending? Do you feel like every bit of money you have is free to go take trips and movies and spend it on yourself? Or do you feel like the extra money should go towards the savings? Should it go towards a joint savings so that we can plan together? Or do you feel like you save your money and you get to do with it what you want and I save my money? So a prenup, in a lot of ways, encompasses these conversations that people don't have. And they don't have it. And it just becomes like a constant conflict, right? Because one side is like, oh, my gosh, my spouse is like overspending We're never going to save for retirement. And the other person is like, oh God, that person is such a nag. Like, this is my money. I'm earning my money. Like, leave me alone. Why do they keep bothering me? And so this is the kind of conflict that arises in a relationship where you did not have a prenuptial conversation about how do you want to approach money as a team? So it's not just about dividing up assets. It's about talking about What are the habits that we would like to create? What is our value system? Like, what do you value? I value travel, right? I think travel is really, really educational. I think it's fantastic. And I'm with someone who says, yeah, traveling is a waste of money. You need to be investing all of your money so that you save it for retirement. And I'm like, okay, but what if I die before that, right? And so our value systems are different, but you at least need to surface that so that you can get to a place of understanding. You don't want to go into a relationship or a marriage where you don't discuss those. And instead of a discussion, a hard discussion, it ends up being like a years-long conflict that right. every time it's brought up, and then it becomes a hotter and hotter and hotter topic so that now we can't talk about money because the minute somebody talks about money, it explodes because it's like repetitive, right? Repetitive, like you're spending, yep. too, much, you're spending too much, you're spending too much, you're spending too much. And the other person's like, want to talk about it. It's my money. And then that is going to erode the marriage. So in the prenuptial conversation, you want to have a discussion of how are we going to do this together?
0: So I don't know if this actually happens anymore. Like Kate and I have been married for 20 years almost, but for both of my marriages, I had to start a marriage that lasted five years. But for both of my marriages, we took a class and the class sort of daylighted financial questions. It daylighted you know, sex and daylight at all, kids and what do you think about raising kids and corporal punishment that, you know, you talked about all these things, but we didn't write them all down and then sign our names at the bottom of it. How important, hey, first, do people still go through that class? Second, how important is just going through the class or is it really important to sign something, sign a dotted line so that we have a formal document that sort of reflects and represents everything we discussed in that class?
1: So... I don't know how many people are going through that class any longer because I haven't really heard much about it. I think it's really valuable. So if your listeners know about a class, they better go take it. Or even just going through a mediation where you discuss it. I think it's important, right? Like you don't need a class necessarily, but you should have a safe space with a guide, like a facilitator, mediator to talk about it. And I think it is tremendously important to sign on the dotted line. And why? Because... The memory is infallible, right? It's like you don't Mm. remember everything. And most of the time people are like, I don't remember saying that. Like that's usually what happens during divorce mediation. I mean, it happens a lot where people say, okay, we're going to send our kid to this private school and then eighth grade, we will, you know, renegotiate it. Let's say it's a verbal agreement. Eighth grade comes along and then the one who is wanting to renegotiate says, okay, well, let's renegotiate. And the other parent is like, What are you talking about? Like, we're going to continue on like the same trajectory, the same private school. And then the other side says, well, wait a minute. We talked about this. And then the first parent says, I don't remember that. Right. So in order to decrease the amount of conflicts that you have, if you have those really important life agreements, do not expect the either party's memory is going to serve you well because it will not. I can tell you right now. People don't even remember having those conversations. And especially if it like behooves them, they really won't remember having those conversations. And so it's better to pull it out so that you can say, "Okay, fine, great. All right. My bad. I didn't realize I said that. And so it will like immediately get rid of those arguments where you're going to argue about like, yes, you did. Because can you imagine how it feels if you, Jonathan, remember very clearly that I said something and then I tell you, I don't remember that. It's infuriating. It's infuriating. infuriating. (laughs) You're going to try to depend as hard as you can. And now we're in a very like strong hunt. Con- and so in order to avoid that, it's better to get that all in writing. Put it away somewhere safe, you know. And then here's another really good tip for your listeners. The My CDFA was like, on the date that you get married, get all your financial statements of all your net worth, put it in an envelope, mail it to yourself with so postmarked on that day and write do not open on there and put it away. So that if you ever have to get a divorce, you know what your net worth was when you got married.
0: That's genius. Right? I mean, that is the most complex piece of the whole puzzle. Yeah. You know, when people go through divorces, I don't know what I was worth when I got married 20 years right. ago. No right. idea what my were.
1: Can you imagine if you had all those statements and just mailed it to yourself back then? And now it's like a 20-year-old little envelope. You open it up and you're like, oh, this is what I was worth. And everything else is community property.
0: Yeah, The company I worked at, you know, went under 10 years ago. I deposited money out there 20 years ago. There's no record of it. It's just gone. You and can't banks
1: easily that. close. Banks are yep. gone. And you're yep. like, oh, I can't get yep. the bank in because that bank doesn't exist anymore. So it's a right. really good practice to do that because then in the event that it does get contested, you can just say, here's the paper trailer. Here's my information. I mailed it to myself when I got married.
0: So the next thing you're working on, I'm just curious before I get to that. Do you ever go down the process? Somebody hires you to mediate their divorce and then they're working with you. And by working with you, because of your communications training and because you're mediating things, do they go, you know what? Maybe we don't want to get divorced. We just need to learn how to communicate better. And so that's the first question. How often does that happen? And then the second part of that question is, do you have a course coming out at some point in the future that's all about communications that lead to prenup? Like, how do you have these communications before you're married?
1: So I haven't quite had anyone decide that they're not going to get a divorce. And my guess is because the damage is so deep that you yeah. can't come back up from that. Right. They've already drowned their love for each other. It doesn't exist anymore. Right. 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 And, however, I've had people go through the whole divorce mediation with me. They had adult children and they still came back one more time for a communication session because they knew that they had to communicate with one another about their adult daughters. And they knew that they couldn't do it without my help. So they said, please give us some ground rules so that we can engage with each other because right now we can't even talk. Right. So they wow. did that. And I've had other people come through and they said, OK, we don't want to get a divorce. We want to have a mediation to try to repair the marriage. And also, in addition to that, we would like to get communication training so that we can continue in a more positive manner. I mean, literally all I have to do is set up all the ground rule, the framework. And as long as you follow that, you'll have like a much better time of it. Like, imagine, Jonathan, if you got acknowledged every single time you said something that you're upset about. If your wife was like, let me make sure I understand it. You, you'd be like, wow, she gets me. It feels great. Right. Just is going to give you a lot of joy. And so if people do that, it will definitely help improve their relationships. And I currently offer an eight-week course that's for people. It's a negotiation and communication. But believe me, when I say even though negotiation, and people might say, well, I don't negotiate. Oh, you negotiate with your spouse on the daily. And if you have children, you negotiate multiple times with your children on the daily. And I had somebody recently come through as a executive coach, and she said, oh, I'm taking the class because I want to be able to serve my clients better by learning some negotiation skills. And what she said in the middle of the class was, this is helping my marriage. She's like, mm. I never realized that these communication skills would help. She goes, they're literally helping my marriage.
0: So I just want you to highlight those two things. It sounds like you talked about a communication session. You also talked about a negotiation course. Should you just highlight those two things for us?
1: Yeah, so I've got an eight-week course. It meets every single week for an hour and 15 minutes in a small group, like four to six people. And every single month I start a new group. And we go in and we practice negotiating and communication skills and we practice those so that when you go back out to your spouse or your job or you want to go negotiate another job, whatever you want to do, you're going to come through with a lot more confidence. And if you're going into it to help your marriage, your marriage will be a lot stronger by going through that course for sure. And then I also do individual coaching sessions. Sometimes people will say, oh, well, my husband decided not to use you as the mediator, but can I hire you to help me negotiate my divorce? And so I'm there for that as well. So yeah.
0: Great. That's multifaceted. So there's an enormous amount of noise out there. I just want to ask every guest that comes on to really simplify it for us. So if you had a chance to chat with a couple before they were married, or even it sounds like after they're married, but let's stick with before they were married. What is the one thing? you would tell them to do specifically about money that would help them successfully stay married, not seek divorce 15 years, 20 years later?
1: I mean, I feel like having that prenuptial mediation, premarital mediation is critical because it's, again, as I mentioned, it's not about like how we're going to split the assets if we get a divorce. It's about how do we as a family think about money, right? Where do our values, lie are our values in alignment right right and then you can talk about that and you can all about the money and it will really cement your relationship because you want to make sure that you're putting yourself on the same path it doesn't help if you go into a marriage and don't realize that your partner a has a different value system when it comes to money and two has a different goal Because then you're going to struggle and also your marriage might end up only having like a shelf life of like five or 10 years because you weren't in alignment and didn't realize it until later on.
0: I thought that that might be the answer, but I wanted to ask the question very specifically anyways. But there's a second half, right? So what is the one thing that you would tell them to avoid doing?
1: I would say that they really should avoid spending money on things like, you know, buying houses or whatever and having no paper Like that leads to a very ugly car crash at the end of the relationship, right? So don't buy a house or pay for the mortgage or whatever it is that you're doing. Or let's say you agree that I'm going to be buying groceries and furniture and you're paying for mortgage. Don't like not have a paper trail. Like even if it's a spreadsheet, put it in a spreadsheet that you're like spending this like whatever the agreement is, have a spreadsheet. Because if you're trying to unwind 20 years of marriage and there's been no spreadsheet and no accounting. Can you imagine trying to do bookkeeping 20 years in the past when there's like a bunch of stuff that you don't know what happened, but you're determined to get what it like what you put into it? It's it's nightmarish. And it's going to be nightmarish for you, not for me, the mediator, for you, the person getting a divorce. So I would say do not go into a business relationship with your spouse and not keep right.
0: I was gonna say something to the fact that you use the negative to establish another positive, but I like how you phrased it there at the end to sort of take it all, put it all together. So we've talked a long time about avoiding divorce, but let's, you know, I'm assuming that, you know, because as you said, people find this on online, someone's going to Google divorce, they're going to come across this, they're not going to be a regular listener, but there's going to be people that find this conversation that are just seeking information about divorce because they're thinking about it. So if they haven't already filed, what should they do to prepare themselves for the process? just in case somebody finds this that is, you know, leaning towards divorce.
1: I love that you asked that, Jonathan, because I just rolled out a webinar called Design Your Own Divorce. And it's a couple hours long, and it's for people who are thinking about divorcing. It goes over all the things you sort of have to wrap your brain around, you need to start thinking about. And I have a few modules in there that talk about negotiating. So how to negotiate, so then you get what you want. And, you know, it's not about like, oh, Let me get one over on my spouse because I'm going to take this course on negotiation. If you have two strong negotiators, you are more likely to get to a win-win than if you have two weak negotiators because strong negotiators understand it is about getting to the win-win. It is about getting a deal that everyone is happy with. And you know, some people, when they talk about a lot of the teachers of mediation say, oh yeah, like a mediated agreement is one where Both sides feel like it's a lose-lose, but, you you know, you're able to stomach the lose-lose. I am not that kind of a mediator. I am the type who believes that there's a win-win if you believe in it. You just have to dig really hard to find, right? And so, yeah, so I think that, yeah.
0: I'm assuming or I'm hoping that we put all those things, hoping I don't have to hope I run this thing. So we'll put all those links inside the show notes so everyone has access to that. Thank you for that. Just a couple more personal things. You know, what was the last thing you changed your mind about?
1: The last thing that I changed my mind. That's a good question. Hmm. people
0: up quite a bit, but I always have to ask it.
1: I know. I'm trying to think what that would be. Wow. I had to think a bit about that. The last thing I changed my mind about, okay, this goes back a few years, but I'm going to say that the last thing that I changed my mind about was the fact that I went into mediation and started my solo practice. Prior to that, I was really into working at tech startups. I really liked the environment and learning everything. And it was wonderful. It was a really wonderful journey. And I wanted that. And then I got to a point where it wasn't so much that I didn't want it. I still wanted it, but like my opportunities disappeared. And so that's when I changed my mind and decided like, let's try being an entrepreneur. And it has been a very difficult yet very rewarding journey for me to get myself to where I am today, where I'm mediating full-time and negotiating and coaching negotiations as well.
0: That's awesome. I've heard answers like this morning, you know, I was pouring my cereal and I put in blueberries instead of strawberries. I heard answers as simple as that, or like you just shared, like three years ago, I made a huge decision about my career direction. And so that's, I love it. The second one's not an easier question. So prepare yourself. Can you name a place that you visited that had an impact on who you are today and what was the impact?
1: Yes. So right after college, I moved to what was called Czechoslovakia at the time. So it was a long time ago. And I stayed there for three years. That experience pretty much changed my life. I became fluent in Czech. I began thinking like a Czech person. And like just my entire life view changed in that time. It was a very different time. It was just after communism had fallen and nothing had changed. Like nothing. It was the same there. And so when I lived there, it felt like I was living in a communist country. And so because of that experience, I'm able to see the world well, like sort of multifaceted, because I'm not just looking from one angle, right? So I'm looking from multiple angles. And yeah, so I do feel like that experience really changed my life. And I right. cherish. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So tell us how people can connect with you.
1: So they can connect with me either through my website on shakinamediation.com, S-H-I-K-I-N-A is how my name is spelled, and it's and last name, or they can connect with me on LinkedIn. They can just find me at Alice Shakina, And if they need to make an appointment with me, there is a link at my website where they can have a free consult. So I do free consults for people who are wanting mediation. So any one of your listeners can connect with me and have a phone call with me, and I'll be happy to help them.
0: Sounds good. Alice, I want to say thank you for coming on. This may be, for some audience members, the most important podcast we have recorded. Appreciate the time you've spent with us. And I think it's very valuable content. So just a note to everybody, make sure that if you're about to get married to consider and maybe get a prenuptial agreement. We're going to make sure everything's in the show notes. Thank you so much for being our guest.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks
2: for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.